0: What do you do when you're caught in the wrong? I'm sure you've found yourself in a situation at some point in your life where you've realized you're in the wrong, or you've been caught red-handed, so to speak. What do you do in that moment? What do you do? I asked this question on Instagram to all my followers, and I wanna share a few of their responses tonight, and some of you responded to this, so get ready. Lawyer up. That was the first one I got. Burn the evidence and run to Mexico. I do the crime, but not the time. Repent. That's good. Apologize and seek what I can do to fix it. Depends. Sometimes I deny or blame on others, and sometimes I confess straight. Double down. Own it. I'm doing it wrong. So what? Depends who I'm caught by. A thousand thoughts on what I did plus what I should have done. Take it to God. Take responsibility. Depends what I'm doing. Either find a way to justify it or stop and apologize. Now all these answers are quite telling, right? And they they vary dramatically in terms of how people respond. But they all have one thing in common. They all desire to avoid the cost of doing wrong. The cost of being caught in the wrong as one of the respondents put it, who may or may not be here tonight, they do the crime, but not the time. When we're caught in the wrong, we will do whatever we can to avoid paying the cost of our wrongdoing. We do this because our wrongdoing erodes trust between friends and family, it removes our integrity and pulls down our identity, and reveals who we really are as those in our wrongdoing. And this shame, Of being this kind of person who does wrong is enough for us to desire to do whatever we can to avoid that cost. To do whatever we can to restore our identity, to restore our integrity and character in our community. But how do you do that? Will burning the evidence suffice? Will lawyering up and being that court suffice to remove the stigma and the pain of guilt? Will it be enough to own our wrong and to apologize and hope for the best? Will being sorry be enough? How do we right our wrong without losing ourselves in the process and paying the ultimate price? Because that's why we turn to these other alternatives. because We don't want to pay the cost. Is there hope instead for restoration? That's what this story in Luke 15 is all about. Now, as I mentioned before, we're in the middle of a series with Jesus on the road. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at what is involved in following Jesus. What does it mean to apprentice under him? What does life in his footsteps look like as we seek to live out the kingdom life he has called us to live? And we've seen how the Pharisees time and time again just get it wrong. They are the people who fail to live up to the way of life that Jesus wants us to live. And so we're not to be like them. And once again, in chapter 15, the Pharisees prove they do not have a heart that reflects after God's own heart. Whilst they're grumbling about Jesus hanging out with sinful people, the outcasts, prostitutes, tax collectors, the morally bankrupt, Jesus tells these three parables to show how God's heart is so different to their heart. That his heart, in fact, is for the lost to come home that his heart is to see broken people restored. His heart is to see sinners in their wrongdoing forgiven and made right. You see, according to the Pharisees, they saw life, they operate in a world where you got what was fair, you got what you deserved, that's what life was about. But in our passage in Luke 15, we see Jesus invites us into a different kind of life, a life of grace, where we don't receive what is fair because if we did, None of us would be here tonight. None of us could enjoy the grace of God, his love for us. And so for a world that has absolutely no idea of what to do when they're caught in the wrong, this passage teaches us that there is one we can go to, to find grace, to find mercy, to find restoration, where our wrongs can be made right so let me unpack this as we come to this story jesus begins his third parable saying there was a man who had two sons the younger one said to his father father give me my share of the estate So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. We have a young man right here, probably a teenager, 17 or 18 years old, and all he wants to do is party. It looks like he's just finished high school, perhaps, and he's going to go on the schoolies to end all schoolies. And like all rich kids, they go to their parents to ask for money. But he doesn't just simply ask for money, he does way more than that. We read that he says, give me my share of the estate. In other words, he wants his inheritance. He goes to his father, who is still alive at this point, and is alive after the fact as well. Give me my inheritance. Give me what is coming to me. Now it's obviously this kid has never asked for money in his entire life. I don't know about you growing up, but I was very careful about how I asked for money from my parents. Never, Dad. He would never let me have money. But to my mum, of course, I'd ask her. She was always very gracious and kind and compassionate to a fault. So I would take advantage of that and make sure I can get money from her instead because she would always give it to me. So I come to mum, mum, I'm going out with some friends this afternoon. We're going to have fellowship there from church. We're going to have fellowship together and great time together, have dinner together. And we're also going to see a movie together. And so could you please spare me at $25, $30, $35 if you're feeling generous. Uh, it would be greatly appreciated, mum. So we're going to spend time together mom would be like, of course, you're my son, I love you. Here's $35, here's extra, go and have fun. This kid has no idea. He goes straight for the, the biggest lump sum of money he can think of, the inheritance. And it's kind of like he's saying, dad, you're better to me dead. You're better to me dead because if you were dead, I would get an inheritance and I would be able to have all this property and I could sell it. And then I could go fund the life I want to live. I could go live the life I want to live away from my family. You see, his request shows that he wants to sever himself from his family, from the responsibility of of loving his mum and dad, from serving his brothers and sisters as well, so he could live a new life. And the most fascinating thing is that the father gives him what the property. He divides it up and gives his younger son his share of the inheritance. Now, I am not a parent. I am a parent of pot plants, and they are currently dying on us, and it's not good, but I want to talk about that right now. But I'm pretty sure this is not a good parenting. This is not good parenting, that when you are a son or a daughter, and you go to your mum or dad and say, whilst they're alive, give me my inheritance, you don't give them their inheritance, their inheritance that's coming to you. Surely you would punish them and ground them for weeks or months on end. So why does he do it? Why does he give his younger son's share of the inheritance? I have no idea. No idea. But perhaps what Jesus is trying to get out here is that this reflects a loving and gracious God who will let people walk away from him, even though they really shouldn't. Even though we are all created in God's image, even though we are created to serve and love him, and he is our Lord and our King, God is so kind and so compassionate that he will let people walk away from him, ready to welcome them home again. So the son takes the inheritance and squanders it in reckless and wild living. That's an abstract way of saying he went on an absolute bender. His new life would have been full of sex and drugs, expensive hotels, alcohol and food. And for a couple of months, he would have lived like a rock star until he didn't. Look at verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You can imagine the Pharisees at this point who are listening in here, and they're probably thinking, finally, good, this young man, this youngest son is getting what is coming to him. He is getting what he deserves. It's only fair that he fall in hard times after what he did in asking his father for the inheritance. And I'm sure as a part of us, that feels the same way, thinking, yeah, he gets this. He he deserves this. This is only fair that he suffer right now. Because when we see people caught in the wrong, we think good. It's only right. It's only fair. Sin should and does have consequences. And here this younger son is experiencing the consequences for his sin. He goes from having it all, living a life of indulgence like a rock star, to a state of depression desperation having to work with pigs to survive now according to the law in the book of leviticus to be in contact with hoofed animals such as pigs was to be considered unclean and dirty and therefore unworthy of being in god's presence and so therefore no one would want to hang out with you because you would be considered unworthy to be in god's presence and so to work with pigs for that to be your vocation your full-time job, that was a degrading and shameful, dishonorable vocation for a Jewish boy, especially a proud Jewish boy like our younger son, a younger brother here. But it's a fitting punishment for him. And so as he longs to eat, the unclean animals eat food, he begins to realize his wrongdoing and sin. And perhaps it took the experience of shame and disgrace of working with pigs for him to realize the disgrace and shame of what he had done against his father. It might have took a famine. It might have took losing everything. And it might have took working with pigs. But he eventually recognizes his wrongdoing. He eventually sees that what he has done, he has sinned against his father and against God. But the question is, is what will he do? How will he right this wrong? What will he do now he's realized he's in the wrong? He says this, or he thinks this in verse 17. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. His hope is to do whatever he can to become and to be made acceptable again. His sinful actions have costed him his identity as a son. And because he is operating out of a worldview that you get what is fair, you get what you deserve, he is hoping that he will be made into something acceptable given the circumstances, given what he has done that is wrong. So he knows it's not fair to ask to be made a son once more. But maybe it's fair enough that he has made a hired hand instead. To be made something that has more dignity and at least food than what he is now as a pig feeder. I think we can relate to this, a lot of us. We might, not, we might uh, know that it's too far gone to repair that relationship we had with that person once who we've hurt. And we know it's unfair to ask that person let's just go back to what it was before, before I messed up and, and hurt you. Let's just go back to that, what we were before. We know we, we can't necessarily just go back. And so perhaps you think to yourself, well, maybe we can come to understanding. Maybe I can say sorry enough or repent enough that we come to some sort of understanding in terms of peace. And that's not what I want, but maybe that's enough for me to move forward from here. I know that feeling all too well personally. At the end of high school for me, I had a falling out of my best friend and it was, it was a bad falling out. And I look back on it and I recognize there were so many things I could have done and should have done as a friend. And for years after, I was weighed down by guilt and shame, knowing how much I had hurt this person. And of all places, we were at a wedding reception together. Somehow we end up in the same wedding reception and we spoke to each other. And that night, he just forgave me for all I had done. He forgave me of my sin. But that didn't mean that we were restored as best friends. Now we came to an understanding. We had peace. We could move forward with our life. But the pain and the guilt of what I've done still kind of lives on with me. I have peace. I can move forward now and not have so much guilt. But that pain that stigma is still there because ultimately what was lost was, a, was being best friends with this person. And now I don't have that anymore. In fact, I don't really see this person much anymore in my life. He's on Facebook, but that's, that's it. And so no doubt this is what the youngest son, is feeling at this point. Being made a hired hand is acceptable, but it's not what he ultimately wants. We've got to understand that he's going to come back to his father, ask to be made a hired hand, and then he has to live on being a hired hand for the rest of his life. He has to watch as his father and his brother love each other and care for each other, as his brother receives his father's attention and adoration and compassion whilst he is treated like an employee. He has to watch as he, as he, as he looks at the relationship of his father and, and his brother and, and how they love each other. He has to recognize that he threw that away the moment he asked for his father's inheritance. And so therefore, this is like a... a a sense that he's trying to go this is enough for me maybe this is fair enough that i become a hired hand it's not what i ultimately want but maybe it's enough and so he decides to make his way back to the father hoping that he'll be made acceptable hoping he will get enough what is fair but what happens when he gets there what happens next is incredible the world he operates in where you get what is fair, you get what you deserve, the same world the Pharisees operate and live in, and the people listening in operate in, and perhaps we all operate in as well. This world gets flipped and turned upside down. What they expect to happen to the Son does not actually eventuate in the end. Instead, something else happens, something that conveys what God's heart is like. The reason why God's heart is so different to that of the Pharisees is because He operates differently. God operates not according to what is fair, but according to grace. A way of life where grace leads to repentance and forgiveness for our wrongdoing. And that leads to restoration and a new identity. If you look at verse 20, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Before the son can even start his speech, before he can even get to the property, the father is already seeing him and running towards him because his son is coming home. Now, this is not something you did in the first century. Run. No one ran the first century. There was no park run in first century Palestine. There was no sense of you ran for fun at all. No sense that you would run to get fit and healthy. The only reason why you might run in the first century, or well, two reasons why you might run in the first century, was that if you were a soldier in war, you would run into battle. Or if someone was attacking you and trying to kill you, and you had to run for your life. That's the only time you would run in the first century. And so you only ran if there was an urgent and immediate need before you. Now, not only that, but to, for this man of nobility, this wealthy man who had lots of land, for him to run was shameful and disgraceful. He would run and his cloak would fly up, revealing his bare legs. And that, and everyone who saw would have gone, Oh, what is he doing? That would have been shameful for him as well. As they saw his legs. And that's not a real problem now. If you go to Manly and you see people running along the beachside, people have the shortest shorts you ever see. It's ridiculous. And there's some men who shouldn't wear those kinds of shorts at all. But this was shameful for so many men back then to run in such a way but he doesn't care he doesn't care about the shame or the stigma because his lost son is coming home and he can see him he runs with such urgency like a soldier not to try and destroy his enemy but to embrace his son he runs not to with filled of anger but filled of compassion and overflowing as he greets him he kisses him he embraces him he shows him grace and compassion he's welcoming him home and the son's probably thinking whoa this is full on i did not expect this he's probably shocked a little bit here thinking i expected to be made a hired servant but my father is greeting me like a son and so the fun the son begins to respond he says father i have sinned against heaven and against you i am no longer worthy to be called your son he's given the space to repent to be real and honest about his sin knowing his father loves him and shows him grace and compassion telling him he has sinned against his father and against god but if you notice he didn't finish his rehearsed speech he left out the part where he said he was going to say make me into a hired servant now You you could read this and think that maybe he's just leaving this out. You know, it's all going so well at the moment the father is running to him and hugging him and kissing him. Maybe just let's leave out the part that I want to be made a higher servant and just embrace the love as a son again. But he's not doing that. You see, what he's actually trying to do is that he has recognized the compassion and the love his father has for him in embracing him. And instead he is recognizing that to be made a son again is a means of grace not something we can achieve on our own and that the father has already shown such grace and mercy and now he knows the father can make him but only him only make him a son again and that's what he does in verse 22 quick he says to the servants bring the best robe and put it on him Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Instead of scolding him and condemning him, having a go at him, making him beg and grovel to become a high servant, let alone a son again, he actually shows mercy and grace and allows him to repent and receive forgiveness. And what he does here is that he begins to reconstruct his son. He doesn't say, I've made you my son again. What he does, he tells his servant, bring that robe, his robe. Bring that ring and put it on his finger, my ring. Bring those sandals, the ones he used to wear, and put it on his feet. He begins to make his son again. Do you see that? He begins to remake this young man who was a pig feeder into his son. And so doing, his identity is restored. He's had The experience of grace and compassion. He has repented of his sin and that has led to the restoration of his identity as a son. In a world that operates according to what is fair, this younger son could only hope to be made into a hired hand if he had done enough, if he had begged enough, if he had paid his due. But in a world that operates according to grace, he could come as he was, completely broken, lost sinful and find grace instead repentance and restoration in this world the lost can be found in this world the dead can live again in this world prostitutes and tax collectors are invited to sit at the table and eat and drink in this feast where they are remade as sons and daughters of the living God where they are clothed in righteousness the righteousness of Christ in this world, the morally bankrupt, the sinner, the traitor, are given the opportunity to repent and be made new, to come from death over to life. In this world, there is hope for the one who has done wrong to be made right. This is the economy that God lives in, the economy of grace. Listen, no matter what you've done, no matter how guilty you are in the eyes of many, you're invited to participate in this economy that God lives in, to enjoy grace and love of your heavenly Father, to be real and acknowledge your wrongdoing and find life and hope to be made new as sons and daughters. Because this is possible because God's own son took the guilt for us. God's own son took what was unfair for him, but what was fair for us, punishment and death. For our sin, he took that for us because God operates according to grace, and shows us what we do not deserve. And that you are invited to be part of this economy of grace. But the story isn't finished yet. This was a story about two sons, and now we come to the second son, the eldest son, and we're going to look at his response to what is going on here. If you look at verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house. He heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is back safe and sound. Now, How would you feel? How do you think this older brother feels at this point? You have lived as the older brother, The best life possible. You've been obedient to your father. You've lived upright, morally. You've never done anything wrong. You've served your father your whole life. Whilst your younger brother has been a fool, a wicked man. He has taken his father's inheritance while still alive. That's not good. And spent that on crazy living and then fallen on hard times, Just getting what he deserves. But how would you feel if he came back and your father throws a party for him? Where is the justice in that? How is that the right thing to do? How is this good parodying again? And of course, when you live in a world that operates according to what is fair, that's how you're going to respond. We read on. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, "Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Although the father goes to him and pleads Come, please celebrate with me. He's come home. Your brother has come home.'" He will have none of that. Instead, what, he, what he's trying to point out here, what he's trying to say is that I deserve this feast, not him. I deserve to be celebrated. He doesn't. I've been good. I've done what is right. I've lived the right way. He has failed to live up to the standard that I've lived up to. He claims in this moment to be a self-made man. Claims that he has done enough to be worthy of this celebration himself. And now he is full of bitterness and envy and rage because it's not him who is the object of this celebration. But what he misses, what he misses here, is that he is is as much a son by grace as his younger brother is. He is as much a son by grace as his younger brother is. If you look at the father's response, it's so beautiful and so gracious, my son. He says, tender, loving, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. For the older brother, life is all about receiving what is fair. But the father is wanting to invite him into a life that's all about receiving what is unfair, grace, and mercy not one of receiving what is fair indeed if the older brother received what is fair he wouldn't measure up in this moment the irony is he has claimed to obey his father all his life and yet in this very moment whilst a party is going on he pulls his father out and dishonors him and disobeys him and does not go in he can't even live up to his own measure and standard he didn't earn his identity as a son It was given to him by his father. And as his father reminds him, everything that is mine is yours. In other words, everything that is mine is mine to give to you out of grace, not because of what is fair. And so the question that kind of hangs over him is will he repent? Will he re-enter into the party and choose to celebrate the return of his younger brother, safe and sound, with a renewed vision of, of his own sonship, as one of grace, not self-made. We aren't given the answer, we're left in the dark. In this moment, Jesus turns the story over to his listeners. Firstly to the Pharisees, who are the classic older brothers, who live life according to what is seen as fair rather than grace and he's making the point you who have done so much to be made right you have done so much to enter into my kingdom you who think you are worthy enough to be in my home you will be left outside like your older brother because you think it's all about what you've done and not by grace the biggest threat to our christian faith is that when we treat grace like the entry point into life with god rather than the very thing defines the whole of our life with God. Missing this key thing at the very beginning of our Christian life means that the further along we go in our relationship with God, the more likely we'll become like the elder brother. Sorry, the more likely we'll become like the Pharisees. And so Luke 15 reminds us that God is inviting us into a totally different way of life. The economy of grace, where we can receive His grace, repent of our sins, and be made new. All our attempts to make ourselves new, to restore our identity, will fail because we're not perfect. Living according to what is fair, to what you deserve, will only lead you to do the things we mentioned at the very beginning. To blame other people, to lawyer up, to burn the evidence, to hide away hoping you can somehow protect your integrity and identity and character that way and make right what is wrong or just avoid the wrongdoing altogether. If you're doing that, if you're blaming others and hiding, it's because you're not living according to the economy of grace that God is inviting you to partake in. And so what should you do? Go to the cross. Go to the one who paid for your sin. Go to the one who took on what was unfair for him, but fair for us, so that we could partake in the economy of grace. And then go and run to your heavenly Father who is welcoming you home, who wants to give you that grace and that mercy, who wants to give you the space to repent of your sin, to acknowledge you've done wrong, but not so you can be beaten down and scolded towards, but so you can be made new made into sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. When we are caught in the wrong, what will you do? Luke 15 teaches us to run to the one who will show us grace and mercy so that we might be able to repent and experience forgiveness and enjoy being made new now into eternity. That's the hope that we have living life according to grace not according to what is fair that is our only hope let me pray father we thank you so much that you don't treat us according to what we deserve you don't treat us according to what is fair You rather treat us according to grace. You invite us to partake in this grace where you give us the space to be made new again. You give us the space to repent, to become your sons and daughters again because of what your son did for us on the cross. As we celebrated in the Lord's Supper, we thank you that you took on our sin in Jesus Christ and made us whole again. Forgave us, gave us peace with you so we could have hope for our future. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us more and more to grow into the people you want us to be, people who live by grace. Will we never forget that, that the Christian life is grace at the beginning, grace all the way through, and grace at the end. Amen.